0: Verse 9, verse 11, and verse 13 all speak to us about a mountain, or mountains, if you would. Notice in verse 9, he says, Their pastures shall be in high places. High places are talking about right at the top of the mountain there. He talks about in verse 11 about a mount, about mountains, and perhaps he's thinking about mountain ranges, and perhaps the Judean mountain ranges. He's talking about verse 11. He says, Break forth into singing, O mountains. Mountains are majestic. If you're one who likes hiking or going to heights, mountains are majestic. Have you ever seen them being on the top or you've taken a helicopter ride, you've been on a plane coming over them? Mountains are majestic. Mountains, for the most part, are steep. Mountains can be very challenging. Uh, Mountains can be very inspiring. Mountains can also be very frightening, depending who you are and where you stand on the mountain. Mountains, the Lord speaks to us about mountains. There are about 249 times the Bible speaks about the mountains. We read about the mountains of the Lord. We read about God's people hiding themselves in mountains. Mountains are a place where God's people meet with God. We find that all throughout Scripture. Mountains are a place where God's people meet with God. We read about Moses going up to the top of Mount Sinai. And there for 40 days, Moses spent time with God. In the course of that, with the finger of God, God cut out two slabs of stone and wrote out for him the Ten Commandments. And so Mount Moses was there on the mountain, and it was very evident he'd been on the mountain with God. Uh, Elijah issued a challenge to the prophets of Baal to meet him on Mount Carmel. We've spoken about that several times in the last few weeks. Mount Carmel, which was overlooked, the, the Mediterranean Sea, it was a beautiful place. It was kind of a place of retreat. The people went to a place of retreat and respite. It was a place where God's people would go. And Elijah issued a challenge there. He rebuilt some broken altars, and he issued a challenge there. And the people met with God, and God met with the people. He met them by fire. We read about the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus frequently took his by himself, went up to a mountain to pray. And oftentimes, he would take his disciples up to the mountain to pray, but he'd find a mountain there, a very secluded spot, and there Jesus would meet with God. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a specific mountain, and there on that mountain, the Bible says he took them there specifically to pray, but it was there on that mountain that Jesus was transfigured. Mountains figuratively speak to us about a place where God's people meet with God. Mountains are also symbols of obstacles. They are symbols of obstacles. They represent the difficult challenges of life. They represent the impossible challenges of life. They are obstacles that are between victory and defeat, success and failure, gain or loss. Mountains, as we'll see this morning, are faith-building opportunities. Uh, They're opportunities that God places in our life. Without mountains, we would not have a Moses. Without a mountains, we would not have a Caleb. We would not have a Joshua. Without mountains, there would be no Gideons. Without mountains, there would be no Davids. Without mountains, there would be no Elijahs. Without mountains, there would be no Elishas. Without mountains, we would not see the invisible. Without mountains, there would be no Daniels. Without mountains, we would not have a Paul. Without mountains, we would not have a Peter. Without mountains, you would not be at the place you're at in your life and where God wants you to be in 2021. Mountains are faith-building opportunities. But as you can imagine with me, the highest mountain in the world, perhaps Mount Everest, if you would. And you can look with me up at that steepness, and you can see those snow-capped mountains. We look at those mountains for those of us who are really not into mountain climbing or don't really understand the challenge of that, and we see impossible tasks. We see an impossible obstacle. We see the things before us that are very difficult. And maybe this morning that you are someone facing a mountain in your life today, it might be the mountain of financial debt and you're trying to figure out how to get away from it. It might be the mountain of a family crisis. It might be health. It might be marital. It might be juvenile. It might be the passing of love. loved one. Whatever it might be, it might be a family crisis that you're facing. For some, it is the mountain of emotional upheaval, trying to come out of a deep valley of discouragement, the deep valley of depression. Whatever it may be, we realize you may be facing a mountain. But I want you to notice something this morning. Whatever the mountain is you face... There is the God of your mountain. He says in this fast description, verse 11, I will make all my mountains away. He's the God of your mountain. He's the God of your mountains. You may be facing one mountain, you may be facing a mountain range. And I'm going to tell you this morning, if you don't face a mountain today, you will face a mountain. There's a mountain God's going to put your way. There will be a mountain range He'll put your way. But He's the God of your mountain. He's the God that comes to you and says, I will make a way, I will make all my mountains away. I want you to notice some things in this passage of Scripture about God, the God of your mountain. Number one, would you notice in verse 11 what he says here? In verse 11, he tells us specifically that he is the possessor of every mountain. He's the possessor of every mountain. Look again at verse 11. He says, I will make all, notice this, my mountains away. God said all my mountains. Now, beloved, make no mistake about it. God owns every mountain. Mountains do not own God. God owns every mountain. There is no mountain he does not own. There's no mountain he does not know about. There's no mountain that he doesn't know everything about it. There's no mountain he does not control. God is the possessor of every mountain. Now there are different types of mountains, bear, bear that in mind. There are small mountains and there are big mountains. There are very steep mountains and there's mountains not so steep. There are mountains that are scalable, and mountains we believe that are unscalable. They are rocky. They are bumpy. They come in different shapes and sizes, but they're all God's mountains. We have manageable mountains, and we have what we think are unmanageable mountains. We have little rolling landscapes, and we have very large landscapes, but they're mountains. God says, I will make all my mountains away. God places mountains in your life and my life. God places mountains in our life. When He places those mountains in our life, our immediate reaction is one of two things. Either it's scalable or it's unscalable. Either it's inspiring or it's intimidating. Either it's too high to climb or it's climbable. God places mountains in our lives. God has a mountain for your life and my life. God has a mountain at a specific time. As I said earlier, God may put a mountain before you or God may put a mountain range before you. Whatever it may be, you've got to expect the fact that God says, I will make all my mountains. He is the possessor of every mountain. There's a mountain in your life. They are His mountains. They are the mountains that God gives. He says, I will make all my mountains. I want you to bear in mind this morning, as you read through your Bible, there's not a mountain in the Bible that God does not own. There's not a mountain in your life that God does not own. There's not a mountain that that He does not put your way, that He puts specifically there to challenge you and to stretch you and to push you along the way. They are His mountains. They are His mountains to build your faith. They are His mountains to teach you to pray. They are His mountains to teach you how to exercise great faith through praying. Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We have to understand that mountains are put into our lives to teach us how to trust God for the mountains in our life. There are mountains for us to claim. We must be like Caleb, who said, who said this to God. He said, I want this mountain. Give me this mountain. I'm just saying this morning, God is the possessor of every mountain, and no mountain is the possessor of God. He is the possessor of every mountain. But notice, secondly, this morning, look at verse 11 again. We see the possessor, which you notice in verse 11, we see the pathway. I will make all my mountains away. Now, specifically, God did not say, I will make a way through the mountains. God said, I'm going to put the obstacle in your life. I'm going to put that steep mountain that looks unscalable to you right in front of you. He says, I will make the mountains away.
1: We start climbing a mountain. We start from the valley at the, at, the, at, the, at the
0: base. We start making our ascent upwards. And as we make our ascent upwards, we can't see exactly the pathway five miles up, one mile up. We can only see so many
1: feet in front of us. And the higher we climb the more difficult it appears. The more we feel like a road disappears. We're not sure how we're going to make it.
0: And we get to a certain portion where maybe somebody paved a path for us, and then all of a sudden that path disappears, and we have to start making our own path. And we start realizing we're not walking on something that's plain. We start walking on rocks and bumps along the way. A young boy, a teenager, took his little sister up a mountain path. It wasn't very smooth. And it wasn't long that she started complaining. The a little girl. She started complaining. She said to her big brother, she said, this isn't a path at all. It's all rocky and bumpy, to which he said, the bumps are which we climb upon. And as we go on this, this, steep, this steep terrain, as we walk away, we realize we're stepping on some rocks. And we're stepping on places that are bumpy. And it continues like that for a long way, and it gets a little bit difficult because if we're not careful, we could slip, we could fall, we could tumble down. If we don't get our footing right, we can get hurt, we could sprain our ankle, we could hurt our foot. I mean, a number of things could happen. But God said, I will make my mountain a way. How many of you remember in the Bible there, especially there in the book of Numbers, about the Edomites and where the Edomites lived? The Edomites were the were the were the relatives of of, of of Esau. They were you know Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, and the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And they went southwards, and where they if you look on a on a, a Bible map, the the Edomites, the mountains they lived in, were south. Of the Dead Sea. And so they were way, way down south and they, they encompassed a great, great mountain range. Next time you read about the Edomites attacking the Israelites, things like that, you need to go look at a map to see exactly where they traveled from. They lived up in the mountains. And so that area today is called the land of Jordan. And uh, when you look at those mountains, whether you're, where you're driving on the, on the valley area or if you're looking up, you start looking you kind of wonder, how does anybody live there? How does anybody make their way around there? I mean, there just doesn't seem a pathway. But there is a pathway, and the Edomites created a pathway. In fact, you read, you read about this in Numbers, where the, the, the Israelites led by Moses, they had to pass through the way of the Edomites, and they said, let us pass through this way. They said, we won't touch your food, we won't touch your water, we'll just come by the king's highway. And the Edomites said, no, you cannot go that way. We won't allow you to pass. The Edomites have made a way. Now I want to say this morning, God makes a way. Mountains in our lives, we, we, we hit, when God puts a mountain in our life, we, we kind of make our way upwards. In the beginning it looks like it's scalable, it looks like it's, it's climbable, and then we hit these bumpy paths, these rocky roads, and we can't look around the bend, and we're not sure how far it's going to go, and we realize we may have to climb a little bit away, and it just looks like there's nowhere to go, but God, God makes a way. And So what do you do? When you come to this place, you feel like, well, that's the end of the road. No, it's not the end of the road. You've got to keep on walking. you got to keep on going. you got to keep on climbing. you got to realize that's not the end. There's still a mountain to climb there. You see, God reminds us this morning that, that there's a pathway in every mountain. As you keep going, you'll see that God has a path that he makes for us let me give you some mountain thoughts about pathways today there is a pathway god gives us for the mountain of discouragement there's a pathway god gives us for the mountain of discouragement remember the story there as we come out of first kings 18 and we get into first kings 19 We have the story there of Elijah having a wonderfully victorious moment over King Ahab and over Jezebel, how he defeated all the prophets of Baal, and how he made his way down Mount Carmel. He ran down that steep terrain, about 15, 16 miles. He ran down there as the rain was coming down. He outran the chariot that Ahab was in. As he got into town... Ahab had gotten there finally with the chariot, and Ahab had told Jezebel everything happened. Jezebel had not witnessed the fire from heaven. She was not there to see the authority and the power of God. She was a very hateful woman. She was a woman that despised God. And she said she threatened uh, Elijah's life and put a death warrant out and said, I'm going to take your life just like you took all my prophets. And for whatever reason, Elijah got very scared, he got very discouraged, and at that moment he left. And the Bible says as he left that area where where they were at, he went all the way south down to the area of Beersheba. Now Beersheba was the southernmost part of Israel. You know, when you read the Bible, you talk about Beersheba way at the southern end, which was wilderness area, and on the upper end was the area of Dan, which, which was basically as far north as you could go. And so he went as far south as he could go because he wanted to escape and run away from her. He went down there because he was discouraged. He kept going, kept going, kept going because he was concerned for his safety. He forgot about God. He forgot about God's power. He forgot about situations that God had done for him. He forgot about the three and a half years of preparation, how God, how God uh, used that drying brook there at Kirith to sustain him. And then another two to three years after that, he used a widow woman to sustain him. He forgot all about that. He forgot about the fire that came down from heaven. He forgot about the fact that he prayed for God to stop the heavens for three and a half years and no rain came down. And then how he got up on the mountain and seven times he prayed right at the top of the mountain. He had gone as high as you could go on Mount Carmel. And there on the top he prayed for rain to come. And as the servant went out the seventh time, he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. And he said, rain is on the way there. And he told Ahab, go down and go eat. He said, rain is coming. And so, he forgot about all that. And now he's gone many, many hundreds of miles away to escape from Jezebel. Why? Because discouragement and fear became the mount of his life. It doesn't matter how big you are. And it doesn't matter how strong you think you are. And it doesn't matter how courageous you may think you are. And it doesn't matter how many wars you have fought. There comes a point in time where God knows there is a button in our life that he'll push. And he'll put that mountain of discouragement, that mountain of disillusionment, that mountain of fear in your life, that fear of the future, the fear of death, the fear. Fear of loss, the fear of the loss of a loved one, the fear of disease, the sickness. That fear grips us and all of a sudden our mortality becomes very, very real in front of our eyes. And we get like Elijah, where we feel like the great mountain we face in our life is this mountain of discouragement. Well he's so discouraged that he just went into he went into this complete depressive mode. He wouldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. God had to wake him up. God had to feed him. God had to get him going. God gave him enough food. The Bible says he ate enough to eat, to eat, to sustain him for 40 days. But he wasn't finished traveling. He went all the way up to a mountain. And there in the mountain, his goal on that mountain was not like Moses, to meet with God. And his goal was not to be like Jesus, to spend an entire evening in prayer there. He went to a mountain to find a cave or a den to hide himself. You know, that's what God's people do. When we get so scared and we get so intimidated, we look for a cave or a den, a place where there's darkness, a place where light cannot shine into just where we can hide ourselves and cower in fear and to shut ourselves off from the rest of the world in fact that's what he talks about in one of these verses that they we just get this place of a shadow of darkness we don't want to see anybody we don't want to have any any entertainment we don't want to have any socialization we don't want to hear from anybody we just want to just go in our little corner somewhere in this dark where no one to see us except ourselves there and that's where elijah was but god got him out of that hole and god got him out of that place And there as he stood there, God hit him with a great wind and he covered his face with his cloak, with his mantle. And there, it wasn't through the wind and it wasn't through fire and it wasn't through an earthquake that he heard the voice of God. It was through a still, small voice. Can I tell you this morning, when we hit that mountain of discouragement, God makes a way. And he makes a way, first of all, through that still, small voice of God. When we can be still and know that he's God. When we realize we've been beaten and we've been licked and we've been whooped really badly. and We realize that there is nothing that we could have done to get us out of that predicament. God speaks to us with that still, small voice. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that the Lord is your helper along the way. He speaks to us with that still, small voice. And then God told him something else. He said, now listen, I'm going to tell you something else. You think you're all by yourself. And that's how we feel when the mountain of discouragement comes, or the mountain of depression comes into our life. We feel like it's our problem. We feel like nobody else in the world knows what's going on. And God had to remind him there, listen, you might feel that way, but I want to encourage you, there are 7,000 that have not bowed their knees. There are 7,000. Thousand just like you, you don't know who they are, but they're out there. And I remind you, brother sister in Christ, as bad as your discouragement may be, as low as the depression you may get into, God has His seven thousand that have not bowed their knee, that have not, they have not declined, they have not gotten discouraged, they have not fallen. You don't have to be discouraged through that. And so He says, I'm going to remind you, there are others who have not gotten discouraged. And then He told him a third thing, which we always have to hear when the mountain of discouragement comes. He speaks to a still small voice. He uh, reminds us there are others who haven't bowed their knee. But he also reminds us, I want you to go back to the place where I had you before. I want to go back to the place where I had you before. And he told him to do two things. One, you're going to go down there and you're going to anoint this man by the name of Yehu. who's going to be anointed and he's going to be the next king of Israel. You're going to anoint him one day. And then secondly, you're going to anoint your your successor. I want you to go find the man that you're going to pour your life into for the next 10 years. And his name was Elisha. And listen, God reminds us that if all we do is cower in a corner and hide in a cave and all we do is think about ourselves, nothing ever gets done. We are omitting that the mountain has become our, our a victor over us but what god was telling elijah the mountain is not going to be a victor over you you're going to be a victor over the mountain because i'm the god who makes a way i make a way through every mountain there's the mountain of discouragement god makes a way hey listen there's the mountain of temptation god makes a way listen to what the bible says in first corinthians 10 13 there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now let me ask you a question
1: this morning. Are you facing what you think is an unbearable temptation? Are you struggling with
0: one or more temptations in your life that are mountain? That feel like a mountainous range? God says He'll make a way. He says He'll make a way for us to escape that we may be able to bear it. He tells us that God is faithful. i I remind you this morning, regardless of what the mountains God puts in our life, God is faithful. God is there for us. God will not let us fail through that. God is faithful. He'll never allow you to be tempted. And He never places a mountain in your life that you cannot bear. He knows exactly how far to go with us. And then He says He'll make a way of escape so we can bear with it, Regardless of the temptation you feel and the temptation you're going through, God makes a way to that temptation. But how about this mountain? There's a mountain of discouragement. There's a mountain of temptation. But how about the mountain of rejection
1: and failure? The mountain of rejection and failure. Hardest things in life is Failing at something that you
0: realize you gave your best, but you failed. Or being rejected. Being cast aside and abandoned.
1: Or being at a place like the Apostle Paul was in Acts chapter 14. We went into Lystra and Derby.
0: At the very outset of that ministry, he saw a man lame from his mother's womb. Instead of walking by this man as the typical person would, as he entered that city, he saw an opportunity to glorify God, and through the power that God had given to Paul, Paul took that man by the hand, he spoke to that man, and God healed that man. That man who never had walked before, he had emaciated legs and basically was skin and bone. God gave strength to that man's feet, his ankles and his calves and his knees and his thighs and his hips. And this man leaped and jumped and walked with God. I mean, this man was healed by the Apostle Paul. And so great was that miraculous event that the people in the town of Lystra and Derby they, they started to proclaim uh, Paul and, uh, and Barnabas as Ju- Jupiter and Mercurius. They started to name them Grecian gods. And they said, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't give us flowers, and you don't praise us, and you don't honor us. You give the glory to God. You deflect everything back to the Lord. He says, give it to God. He says, don't, let, let's give God the glory. God was the one that healed this man. We had nothing to do with it. We were just conduits that God used to help bring this about. And Paul says an opportunity where now he thought, well, man, this guy's got healed. We've got people's attention. Now I've got an audience to preach the word of God to him." But unbeknownst to Paul that the Jews that were against him at Antioch, Pisidia, had made their way down. They made their way down to down from Antipas city down to Iconium. and They followed him down to the and Derby and they got all the other Jews riled up. And it's interesting how these men who were scorners and critical in spirit, they said all these evil things about Paul after he just just had done this God used him to do this great miracle on this lame man. And these people turned against Paul and they became filled with vehement anger and vehement hate and wrathful hate. And they just thought he was the enemy of the Jews and the enemy of God. They just considered he was an evil worker and a seducer and all those kind of things. And they took Paul they dragged him out of the city of and Derby as they did so every one of those Jews they grabbed a rock and they say took those rocks and we're not talking pebbles, we're talking big size, hand-sized rocks. In some cases, people took a rock they would hold by two hands, and they started pummeling Paul with those rocks. They were throwing rocks at him. Hey, what would you do when people what do you do when people start throwing rocks at you? What do you do when they start throwing stones at you and bricks at you and rocks at you and bottles at you and tomatoes at you? What do you do when you realize you have been rejected, that you're not wanted, that you're not longed for, that you've been abandoned? And there Paul was by himself, even though there were a few disciples that were him. Paul was there by himself. And his rock after rock after rock was being pummeled at him. He started to buckle. A rock would hit his knee and he would buckle. A rock would hit his head and he'd, feel, he'd start seeing stars in his eyes. And a rock would hit him again and he'd start bleeding. And I'm convinced in my mind as we think about where he was at in Lister Derby. Paul sustained some broken bones. Paul may have even sustained a concussion. And Paul sustained some wounds and some bleeding there. And here the Bible says in Acts chapter 14, Paul had now had fallen to the ground and they just they left him there. They kept stoning him until they thought he was dead. I mean, his mountain was a mountain of rejection and failure. But God made a way through that mountain. Because standing around him were a few of the disciples. I think standing around him, there was Barnabas that was, of course, that was there. And I believe that was there, there was there was Lois and Eunice and Timothy, some of the early disciples there from Derby, And I think there were a few other people that were there that were disciples that got saved and were being discipled by the Apostle Paul. They stood around him. And listen, when God puts that mountain of rejection and failure life, we've got to listen to the voice of God. But we've also got to listen to the voice of those who are along the way, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who are trying to encourage us along the way. And I can imagine as Timothy was there, and Lois was there, and Eunice was there, and Barnabas They were saying, come on, Paul, get up. Come on, Paul, get up. Come on, Paul, don't stay there in that pool of blood. Come on, Paul, don't stay there with broken bones. You can get up. And Paul started to get up. And you know what God tells us to do when the mountain of rejection, the mountain of failure comes? He wants us to get up. Not only did he get up, he went right back to that same city. He went back to the people who hated him, the people who rejected him, and he met them with the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what God tells us to do when the mountain rejection comes? Our flesh tells us leave. Our flesh says you gotta go away. Our flesh tells us to run. But the God of the mountains tells us this listen, you go back to your accusers, and you go back to those who hurt you, and you go back to those who reject you, and you let them know that God loves them, and you let them know that Jesus is in your heart, and you let them know that you forgive them, even as Christ has forgiven you. You go back back that situation do something great for god because you know what he went there and he went back and preached the gospel to the same group of people that's what the apostle paul did i'm saying this morning god makes a pathway for every mountain romans chapter 5 reminds of this he says not only so but we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulations work with patience and patience experience and experience hope but listen to this and hope maketh not a shame because the love of god is shed abroad in our hearts by the holy ghost which is given to us listen God says, I will make a way, I will make all my mountains a way. There is the possessor of every mountain. There's the pathway for every mountain. Would you notice something else? Would you know the pasture on every mountain? Go back to Isaiah chapter 49 and notice these verses here.
1: Verse 9, God says, That thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth. To them that are in darkness, Show yourselves. Prisoners, darkness, people facing mountains in their lives. People feeling trapped in failure and rejection and depression, discouragement, temptation. And when that mountain has conquered us,
0: instead of letting the God of the mountains make that mountain away, we feel like we're in a very dark place in our life, a very dark place. But God said to them in verse nine, "Show yourselves." Jesus here, He's talking to the Lord's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that Thou sayest to the sayest to the prisoners, and He tells us to get out of that place of hiding and to show ourselves and to make ourselves visible. And what He's really saying: Don't stay in that that dark. Musty, contained, darkness of the cave. Come out again. Come and see the sunshine. Come and breathe the fresh air. Come enjoy the life that God has given you. Enjoy the capacity of life as God meant to be. Don't let the mountains swallow you up. Be a victor over the mountain because God says, I will make all my mountains away. Then he tells us something else. He tells us here, notice verse 9, Show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways of, and their pastors shall be in all high places. Now, God, God owns every mountain. And God makes every mountain a way. But God doesn't want us to stop at the mountain any, any place there until we get to the top. Our ultimate goal is to get all the way to the top. And the idea here is not a mountain area, which is where which is, which it's so steep. It's like kind of a, It's got a conical shape at the top. And you just get to the top, that's it. The idea there... Is the Judean landscape and the Bethlehem type landscape where you get on way on the top of the mountains, and as you get there, that's your goal because it's green, it's pasture land, it's land area that every shepherd takes takes an arduous journey to bring his sheep all the way up to the top so he can take them there to feed. And he talks about that that pastures are feeding places for God's people. And here's what God's doing here. God makes a way through the mountains. He brings us to these pastor places not to defeat us, not to overwhelm us, but to feed us. You see, God makes a way through every mountain to feed our soul, to build up our faith, to teach us to pray, to learn how to trust in God, to depend on Him, to realize without God we could do nothing. And He says here in verse 9, He says, They shall feed in the ways. As you make your way up, you start to realize you go from rocks and bumps to realizing there's some growth along the way, and there's some flowers that come up along the way, and all of a sudden you go from a rocky area, you start realizing that the dew has settled here, and the the sun has shined here, and there's been a little bit more more rain that God has sent this way, and you start seeing grass that's growing up, and you start realizing it's not little grass, it's big grass, and the farther up you go, you start realizing, hey, there there is a height up here, and there is a pathway, and there's a top I can attain to, and you get to the top, and you breathe the fresh air, and you look across the landscape, and you see nothing. Nothing but pasture land, you look at his grazing land to a shepherd, that's wonderful because to a shepherd, he's thinking, Whoa, what a wonderful place I can bring the sheep so they can feed there. You see, as we go to verses 9 to 10, we see Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, leading his sheep to feed, and that's the great shepherd doing that which he perfects in life. God brings mountains in our lives as feeding opportunities, he's the good shepherd, he feeds us along the way. That's why David would say in Psalms 119, It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statute. Listen, mountains, God. God puts in our way are to teach us to look to His Word and depend upon His Word so that we can look to Him. When we are not, when we're lazy, and we're slothful, we're not challenged, then we realize God has to put a challenge into our life, a mountain of some kind, that we might learn to depend upon the Word of God. And all of a sudden, we've lost our appetite for God's Word, and we didn't desire God's Word. He gives us back that appetite once again. He leads us beside the green pastures. He he, he, uh, makes us uh, lie down beside the still waters. He restores our soul. Mountain places are places where God leads us to feed. Listen, whatever mountain is in your life, where God's going to put in your life, He brings you there to feed you His Word. He brings you there to delight in His water. He brings you there to drink the cool, crystal water that's flowing from the mountaintop, that's coming down a string, through springs of water that are sprouting up. He wants you to enjoy Himself. But there's a second thing. God not only uses mountains and places to feed us, mountains are places where God shows us how much He loves us. If we're not very careful, we can be so busy and so overcome with ourselves and so overcome with our mountains, we forget God loves us. Look what He says later on in verse 10.
1: They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that has mercy on them shall lead them.
0: Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. There's no mountain in our lives that God places there to punish us. God places the mountain there to build us. God places that mountain there to lead us tenderly. That's what he says here. He says he has mercy on us. He guides us to the springs of water. Why is God doing that? Well, sometimes God puts a mountain in our life because we get so busy and frankly so full of ourselves sometimes, we ignore our spiritual health. We ignore the fact that the vital signs of our spiritual life are showing that we haven't been to that place where we've enjoyed God. And so God puts a mountain in our life to... Make us climb. Enlarge the capacity of our lungs through prayer. To get us to see the green pastures once again and delight in them and he brings us to that place that we can just rest there and that he can show his mercy upon us and as he shows his mercy upon us that we realize how much god loves us you see sometimes as we ignore our spiritual health we don't realize until god puts that mountain in our life that we've been feeding in the wrong places we're not eating in the right pastures we're in the wrong place we're like a sheep that goes astray the bible says all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one of us to his own way sheep think they know where they're going to eat and they think they know where they're going to drink but they wind up finding out later on they've been in the wrong place, and it's not until the shepherd rescues them and brings them out and brings them back to the mountain pastures and guards over them and feeds them. Do they realize they need to be back at that mountain place where God wants to feed their soul? You've got to keep walking. You've got to trust the shepherd along the way that he's going to lead you to a pasture where he'll feed you. But listen, mountain places are not just places where God feeds us, and mountain places are not just places where God loves us, but mountain places are places where God leads us to teach us to be satisfied with Jesus Christ and Him alone. Look at verse 10. They shall not hunger nor thirst. He's not saying you're going to lose your appetite. He's saying, number one, that God brings us to the place we're satisfied with Jesus. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you satisfied with Jesus? Amen. Amen. You happy with Jesus? you content with Jesus? You content where Jesus put you? Are you content with he's taken away? Are you content with what he's not taken away? Are you content with what he's placed in your life? He says he leads us to a place where we're so delighting on that pasture top. We're reading, we're eating from that green pasture. He says they shall hunger nor thirst anymore. Hey, it's a wonderful place to be when you're satisfied with Jesus Christ only. Then he says something else. He said, while you're on that mountaintop, neither shall the heat nor the sun. Smite them. Now that's very interesting because the higher up you go, the more you're exposed to the radiation and the sun rays, the more you risk getting sunburn. The more your risk of getting skin cancer, the more your risk of a melanoma being a melanoma risk. I mean, the more you're there. But God says this, He's using that as an analogy. He says, You're gonna to get to that mountaintop and you're gonna be a little scared because you want to, will there be food on the mountaintop? Yes, God's gonna feed you. And you're gonna to get to that mountaintop, and you're gonna wonder, well, can, well, well, what about the sun? I mean, what about the elements? Will I be affected? Will I get weather worn And God is saying, The sun shall not smite thee. He says, The heat shall not smite thee. You know what God's saying? God will be your shield, God will be the insulation we need. He'll be, will be in the shadow of his wings to protect us, God brings us to this place of realizing we can be satisfied with Jesus Christ alone, and that's a wonderful thing. I will make all my mountains away. He's the possessor of every mountain. He makes a pathway in every mountain. He gives us pastors in every mountain as we close. but you notice one last thing? Look at the last two verses of our, of our study this morning. Look at verses 14, 15, 16,
1: last three verses. Did you notice the promises for every mountain? God told them all these wonderful things. But his people were discouraged still. They still saw this mountain. To them it looked unscalable. To them it left a scar
0: in their life. And in verse 14, God's people said,
1: but Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me.
0: You travel valley with someone who's got a big mountain in their life. When it goes one day, and one week, and two weeks, and three weeks, one month, two months, three months, six months, nine months, a year, maybe two years, maybe three years, maybe a lifetime.
1: It just seems like the mountain is not moving. And God's talking to his people about many years later. He would make a way for them
0: to return from Babylonian captivity after seventy years. Through Cyrus the King. And he said in verse 13, He says, Sing. He says, Sing and rejoice. I'll have mercy upon my people. Let the mountains rejoice. But as Cyrus issued that edict to them, go back to Jerusalem and lay the foundations thereof and build the walls and build the temple, that generation of people said, the Lord has forgotten us. The Lord has forsaken us. That's how we feel sometimes, honestly. You've been down a valley or you've been facing a mountain for any length of time, and maybe it's a mountain that God's placed in your life for the rest of your life. You might have a moment of weakness. You might be so weak in your faith, even though you've been feeding on the pasture. And even though you believe that Jesus can
1: satisfy your soul. You're thinking, God's forgotten me. God has forsaken me. And you may not say it publicly. And you may not even hint at it in your praying. But deep down inside,
0: and at a very low moment, you might say to somebody that you feel strong confidence in, somebody human, the Lord has forgotten me, and the Lord has forsaken me. Now God knows our human tendency. God knows our human tendency is to think God bailed on us, and God didn't hear my prayer, and God did not answer me, and God wasn't there for me. It's kind of like a a young person I knew a couple years ago that was battling a... A health issue. It wasn't a big health issue, but to them was a big health issue. And they said, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, but God wasn't there for me. God left me. And I said, sir, I said, son, God never left you. I said, God did not leave you and God has never forsaken you. I said, you just got to accept right now. That is something God's placed in your life to get you to trust in Him and to look to Him. And if God takes it away, praise His name. But if God doesn't take it away, you still praise His name. Amen? So God's people are discouraged. When it's your mountain and your mountain range, you might be saying, the Lord has forgotten me and the Lord has forsaken me, but God gives a promise. So notice in verses 14 and 15, 15 and 16, excuse me, God uses two very well, un- very understandable, and very, um, two analogies that the people could identify with. Now, we would not necessarily identify with them, but they do. They did. And he said in verse fifteen, Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should have compassion on the son of her womb? Now he answered their their complaint and their discouragement with a question A mother, a nursing mother has a very unique God given bond with her child or children that only mother can have. A maternal instinct is strengthened and bonded during that time of nursing. And for the most part, as we read this question, the mother, a mother's love is so unique. There's no other love on earth like a mother's love. That's why a mother will stay up all night to help her child or do something for her children. Well, that's why a mother will get all stressed out if something's wrong with her child. Remember, young person this morning, you kind of wonder, you, you think, well, my, the way your mom is. Your mom is like she is because of the maternal instinct that's inbred in her through the bonding process. That's why she cares. That's why she's worried. That's why if you don't come home on time, she gets all stressed out. That's why if you're not eating the way you should, she gets stressed out. That's why if you go through the valley of a, of a health trial, that's why she gets all stressed out. Can a woman forget her sucking child? God is saying, listen, you you Jewish women here. You understand the bonding process that you have maternally with your child. Though was you bond with that child, you never forget that child. That child may run away. That child may betray you. That child may hurt you. But as a mother, you never hate your child. You love that child. As far as you're concerned, you'll do everything in your power for that child because you love that child very much. But God said this. Notice verse 15. He says, Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should have compassion on the son of her womb? But the Bible says, Yea, they may forget. Now he says, Now as human as she is, as, as strong as a." Mater- Eternal instinct is she's still human. She will forget. She's not going to have this child 24-7 on her mind. I mean, at critical moments she will, but there may be moments she'll just kind of ease off and forget about it. He says, Now, a mother, a nursing mother might forget her child, but God says, I will never forget you. I will never forget you. Look at it again. They may forget, yet will I? Not forget thee. And God was saying, you may say I've forgotten you, but I never forget you. You're on the foremost of my mind. You're in the centerfold of my thought. I will never forget you. Then he uses another analogy. Look at verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Very intriguing verse. The engraving literally is talking about someone taking something, a a very sharp instrument like a scalpel. And literally, literally, inscribing or engraving on that person's palms. Now, in the, ancients, the ancients in those days, if there was a temple that meant a lot to them, they would take this, this sharp instrument and engrave a picture of that, in, of, that, of that temple on their palms. So every time they looked at their palms... It reminded them of how much they loved the temple. The ancients would sometimes take a very sharp instrument of people they loved that were very dear to them. And they would inscribe them, their names, or even if they could, if they were capable, their faces on their hands. So on the palms of their hands, it was very well known that sometimes if you shake a hand or greet someone, if you look at their hands, you would say, oh, there's something or someone they love very much because they've engraved it on their hands. You know, today, the modern-day thing would be kind of like a tattoo somebody puts on them. And this is not advocating tattoos, nor should be stretched that way to advocate tattoos. It's just say back in those days, the people, to, as, a, as a reminder to them and to show their love for others, they would ascribe them on them. And I want to tell you this morning, the palms of God's hands has every one of our names. Everything about us, about we're sinners, saved by grace. And Jesus died for us. On the palms of our hands are engraven the names and the faces of every one of us who are saved and born again. Amen. We're right there in the palms of his hands. And so he took an analogy that they understood, a metaphor that they understood very well. And he said, verse 16, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, thy walls are continually before me. God says, listen, you may say I have forsaken you, but look on my hands. I have not forsaken you. Look at my hands. I'm not forsaken. By the way, I'm reminded this morning that Jesus' hands were wounded when nails were pierced through His hands, when the nails were riven through His hands and through His feet. And that night of the resurrection, when He came to the disciples inside that upper room, and He showed them the palms of His hands, those wounds spoke volume. Those were wounds for me, and wounds for them, and wounds for you. Listen, we are engraven on His hands. Does God forget us? No. Does God forsake us? No. We are written on the palms of His hands. He gives us the promise, you may he said, I've forgotten you and I've, but, and I've forsaken you, but I've never forgotten you and I've never forsaken you. He says, listen, you are always on the foremost of my thoughts. You're always in my heart. Listen, God says, I will make all my mountains away. Whatever mountain is that God places in our life. He places there that we may feed on his pastures. That we may learn the pathway leads to the top. That we may learn that we shall never hunger nor thirst, and the heat by day and the sun by day cannot smite us, and that we be reminded that in the insecurity of our hearts and the weakness of our moments, that we realize that God never forgets us, and that we might remember that He's engraving us on the palms of His hands, and that we might remember that God is there for you and I when we face those times of mountains. To so close this morning, I need to close. I'm going to close by give you a thought as we, we leave this passage. There's one mountain God doesn't want us to forget about, and one mountain that He places in every life, that mountain's called Calvary. The mountain on Calvary' where Jesus went, was called Golgotha, which means the, the hill which is a, shaped like a skull. He ascended up that hill with a cross on his shoulders, and there on that cross, there on that mountain called Mount Calvary, Jesus was crucified. He bare our sins in his body on the tree. Through the mountain of Calvary, the cross that Jesus Christ died on, he made a way. He made a way. He says, I will make all my mountains a way. And if you look at verse 8, look at verse 8. He says, thus saith the Lord, in acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of salvation have I helped thee. So precious are those words, the Apostle Paul quotes it in 2 Corinthians 6.2. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. Mount Calvary, God made a way for sinners to be saved. Mount Calvary, God made a way for sins to be forgiven. Mount Calvary, God made a way for our sins to be paid for in full, where our sins would be imputed upon Jesus Christ. And upon our faith in him, we are justified by faith with God. And through that faith in God, we realize we become sons of God. The Bible says, to as many received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And that we would learn through Mount Calvary, the greatest obstacle, Christ makes a way through his mountain. you have a mountain in your life? Discouragement, depression, temptation, rejection, failure, health trial, emotional trial, family trial, financial trial. Personal trial, personal difficulty. Is that a mountain? Are you going through a mountain range right now? He makes a pathway. He gives us pastures. He gives us promises. He's the possessor.